The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who are at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 43 is, are there any decent arguments for the existence of God? And we read The Miracle of Theism by J.L. Mackey from 1983, chapters 1 to 3, 5 to 6, maybe 8, maybe 11, which is a guide to and critical appraisal of the traditional arguments for and against the existence of God. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. Existing in the necessarily perfect city of Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> this is Seth Paskin, myriologically consolidating myself in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allman in Boston, Massachusetts. And this is Robert Scott, without a rational framework, coming from Cape Town, South Africa. Welcome, Robert. Yes, welcome. Yep. And welcome back, Wes and Seth, both on recording for the first time in a little while. Yeah. Three or four months, I think, right? Well, we are a geek to be doing this. We've built up to this for a long time, or more precisely, we have been building up to the uh, new atheism episode, which is next one, that had been very often requested. And we decided that we needed to do something more respectable to get more of the actual philosophy out there before we move to what I consider a more social and political debate. The new atheists are certainly not making new arguments, but the stance they are taking is more a matter of trying to marginalize the political influence of religion rather than doing anything remotely philosophical. We'll go into that more next time. We actually had been planning an episode from the very beginning for, uh, let's read a little Aquinas, let's read St. Anselm, a little Descartes. And that always seemed like that just would take us about two minutes to read those things out loud. I mean, that's like a total of 10 pages. But uh, this J.L. Mackey book was very often recommended. I had seen it mentioned in the Dan Dennett book that we'll be reading for the New Atheism episode mentioned, and I think actually this is part of Dennett's excuse for not giving any serious treatment to the formal arguments against the existence of God, because he thought, it's already been done. This is the definitive work. But then I also saw in, uh, I mentioned on the Schleiermacher episode, a book by Eric Reitan, I believe, called Is God a Delusion? So it's a response to the New Atheists. And he too, a theist, says, yeah, this is the book. So this is a guy, I don't think his biography matters <laughs> too much. He's at one of the big universities in England. He died around the same time this book came out. He was responding to another big-time English philosopher at Oxford or Cambridge or one of those named Richard Swinburne. So there's a lot of re references to Richard Swinburne. And I think overall, though he tries to be exhaustive through all these arguments, it's a natural theology approach. I think Mackey is a philosopher of science, 
and an analytic philosopher. So if you thought that analytic philosophy is just Bertrand Russell talking about numbers and Frege talking about sets from our past episodes, this is a good example of somebody using just very analytical methods. Let's lay out all the arguments, step one, step two, step three, and trying to be exhaustive in how he's approaching it. That's a good word. So you found the, the experience of reading this a little much? It was exhaustive. <laughs> Exhausting. I found that it's a bit of a tough read at first. I think it's uh, difficult to get back into uh, cosmological and ontological and all of those things that you kind of have an idea of, but it's getting thrown back into the jargon of philosophy 101. Yeah, well, we name dropped those things a lot, and we thought it was time that we got serious about them. In fact, in the Schleiermacher episode, when I name dropped them, I did it in such a hasty way that somebody accused Wes and me of, of not knowing the difference between the two, <laughs> of really of not knowing what we were talking about at all. Which was nonsense. But now, for sure, since we've read this, we know hopefully what we're talking about. And I guess the challenge, though, with something this analytical and lengthy that it just goes on and on about every one of these arguments is getting enough of the sense of this communicated so we're not violating our ground rule to, oh, just go read the book yourself. You'll get it. We have to get enough substance in there that something is conveyed. Perhaps you should mention what our ground rules are. Well, Robert, our token theist from South Africa, as a result of that same line of uh, criticism to our Schleiermacher, I thought we should get somebody that at least uh, would admit to being theist. <laughs> I remember there's definitely a rule about no name dropping. Okay. Unfortunately, since this is like a secondary work that we're dealing with, there is kind of a lot of name dropping. Yeah, it's going to be hard to stick to that rule. <laughs> it's certainly a rule that Mackie doesn't take too seriously. He name drops all <laughs> over the place. But he cashes out. He says, here's an objection from Newman, or, you know, from whoever. Here's an argument from this guy and this guy. I don't think he just says, and Ichi wouldn't have liked that either, and then moves on, you know. Fair enough. Do you remember anything else? Yeah, we've got to be rigorous and exact in all we say, unless it would be more humorous not to. Well, there you go. And we're going to try to assume that our audience has not read, certainly has not read this book, but does not have a philosophy background. So I think some of the more interesting parts of this Mackie book are the arcana of the ontological and cosmological arguments, talking about necessary beings and, and contingency of the universe and things like that. So we'll try to decode all that enough to follow what we're talking about. Robert, tell the folks a little about why you're here, who you are, about your blog, etc. I uh, am a commenter on the Partially Examined Life blog, and I have my own blog called OutsideOfEden.com, where I cover topics around spirituality, atheism, theism, pop culture, music. And I think I'm evidence that if you comment on other people's blogs, good things happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that you are somebody who was evidently sympathetic to theistic positions, but was uh, not mad at us, that was the key it's a very small subset of the population. <laughs> yeah, commenting in and of itself is not a guarantee of good things happening. Humorously and constructively. Yeah. <laughs> the comments have to be good comments. Yes. And plus, I went to your blog and it was good. There were interesting things on it. So Yeah, I, I try to cover, you know, what would be the theology of a Simpsons episode or a Bruce Springsteen song. And while doing that, I, I seem to annoy people on both sides of the spectrum, both atheists and theists. So I consider that probably a sign that I'm doing something right. And I remember when we talked before, you were a bit skeptical about all these proofs yourself, right? Yeah, I think as an outsider, I look at Mackey's work and it seems to be a lot of philosophical self-referencing. Outsiders, I think, especially people who would consider themselves believers or of faith, don't really have any of these arguments as the reason why they believe in God. So it's 
not as though people were objectively, academically looking at the ontological argument and decided, bang, I better believe in God. And I feel like this work doesn't really address that issue. It seems to assume that most people actually do have a rational reason for believing in God, and they've kind of gone through the philosophical arguments themselves, but they're somehow defective and need to be talked out of them. Or at least he's within an academic tradition and is trying to make some sort of advances in pushing group knowledge forward as opposed to whatever individual idiosyncratic reason that you may have that is entirely private and incommunicable for, for right. believing. I think it's a hard one because you do have this weight of tradition, people like Aquinas and Descartes and all their arguments for God, but it's not like you see that in the real world. Outside of the ivory towers of academia, people in church aren't exactly making all of the arguments, although some of them they are. So I think certainly the discussions around morality, what's the source of our sense of right and wrong, is maybe something you might hear in a church, but you're probably unlikely to hear the ontological argument in a church. Yes. Very unlikely. You know, an important question is whether whatever one's motivations for believing in God, whether one can do that rationally. So, for instance, since Kant and Hume, most people have accepted that the arguments for the existence of God fail in some way. And what Mackey here is doing is recounting some of that and refining them a little bit in some cases. But Kant himself thought that despite the fact that those arguments fail, one could still have practical reasons for believing in God and then William James' pragmatic reasons, which Mackey touches on briefly. But there's still a case to be made that one can have reasons to believe in God and rationally believe in God, even if one's fundamental motivations are simply faith, are not themselves rational. You know, here's a demonstrative argument, therefore I believe in God. And I think that's what you were getting at, Robert. Yeah, I agree. I think the one area where perhaps people at least seem to think that they have approached it rationally is the argument for design. So you'll, you'll often hear people argue very convincingly that the reason why they believe is because they've looked at the design argument. That and possibly the uh, morality argument are probably mm -hmm. the two that really extend into popular culture. And I, ironically, I think the cosmological argument is probably the strongest if you were to rate these arguments. Well, I think the difference between where Kant was historically and where Mackey is coming in is Kant was reacting to a tradition that thought you could prove deductively that God exists, right? With certainty, he's coming out of this Cartesian tradition. And after Kant, so Swinburne, the guy that Mackey is chiefly responding to, does not really try to argue very much deductively. It's all inductive and with a great respect for scientific method. Swinburne thinks that really the idea of a creator god is the simplest possible hypothesis to explain, for instance, the wonders of creation that we see around us, the commonality in all things, like explaining why the laws of nature are what they are in the first place. He seems to think that there's something missing if we take a merely scientific, science is great, science's explanations are right. He accepts the theory of evolution, Swinburne does, mm -hmm. but says, even given all that, there's something unsatisfying. There's something that still needs to be explained. This is a point of disagreement. Mackey is going to come down against him, but this is what he has in mind. So when we hit the cosmological argument, I mean, that's traditionally a deductive argument. You know, if everything for sure has a cause, there must be a first cause. Well, Swinburne has an inductive version of it. It's more likely than not. Right. <laughs> Which is a much more modern, I think that made this book. What I really liked about Mackey is even when he's, you know, he spends a lot of time talking specifically about what Descartes said, what Thomas Aquinas said, but he tries to pull these arguments out of their original settings to some extent, because it's too easy if you're just reading 
especially Kant, who's so filled with his own vocabulary, to try to pull it out of a Kantian context and see, is there anything, you know, that your man on the street would find valuable about? How can we rephrase, say, one of Descartes' arguments? So it's detached from Descartes' whole project. Like, is it still useful in some other way? Any other initial impressions, or should we just jump to the first one? I think we should jump to the first one. Well, I thought we might want to start with his chapter two. Mackey's chapter one is on Hume's argument against miracles, which we've at least mentioned in our past Hume epistemology episode. But chapter two is when he talks about Descartes' initial argument in his third meditation for the existence of God, which uh, I think longtime listeners, that was our, what, episode number two. And at the time we talked in depth about the first two meditations and then just got to meditation three and said, oh my God, he just has this horrible argument for the existence of God. It's so bad. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. And then dissolved in snickering. And that was kind of the end of it. So I feel like I owe the listeners three years later, whatever it is, some sort of more detailed account. And actually, contra to my memory of this, Descartes is well known for having a version of the ontological argument, which is Anselm's old argument. And he does, but that's in Meditation 5. In Meditation 3 here, the one he actually does. So remember, Descartes has been arguing, he's doubting everything, and he wants to come up with something indubitable that will ground everything else. Well, the fact that he is thinking right now, that's indubitable. And from there, he gets this principle of whatever it is that I clearly and distinctly understand, that seems to be true. In the process of doing this, one of the steps is to show there's, there's a God, just by examining the contents of his consciousness alone, the contents of his mind, his ideas. So in that sense, this first argument is a version of the ontological argument because it's going just from an idea to the being of God. Somebody else want to actually tell how we, we want to read it? Essentially, the argument is that ideas come from somewhere. If you think of a dog, it's because you've seen a dog or even something like a unicorn. You've seen a horn and a horse. So you can put the two together and your ideas are based on a form of reality. But God is not quite as simple as that. You've never seen infinity or perfection in that sense. So it's almost as though God had to put it there. And one of the key pieces is because the idea, it's clearly and distinctly perceived. Correct. So it's not something that he can doubt or his senses might deceive him. He's got a clear perception of it, which counts as an authority for him. Right. For this purpose, it just, you know, we don't have to give a whole definition of God. It's just an infinite being. Having the idea of an infinite being at all, it means that infinity itself is not a report, like you were saying, of something we've seen. He also, I think the other key point is, is that there are two sources that an idea could have. One of them is because we've actually seen or experienced the thing. The other is, well, maybe my own mind just came up with it itself. And he thinks that that might be possible for lots of things. But he, for some reason, even if you think, and again, this is sort of leaving Descartes' project because he hadn't proved the existence of himself as a physical object or his brain or anything like this. But you might say, my brain is a physical object, and that has plenty of causal power to produce any sort of wispy idea that's going to flit across it. But in this case, the idea of infinity, well, my brain is not infinitely large. How could I have this idea of infinity at all, of an infinite being, without it coming from somewhere that's not my brain and not something I've seen, right? Yeah, Mackie, on page 36 and 37, he gives this nice little summary. He's paraphrasing Descartes. I have this remarkable concept of God, of an infinitely powerful and infinitely perfect being, creator and sustainer of the whole universe. The content of this concept cannot have been built up out of other mental contents, nor can it have been derived in any ordinary way from the perception of material things, or from my awareness of myself and of the operations of my mind. It is also quite different from the ideas of the various secondary qualities for which it is possible to suppose that my own mind, in conjunction with my senses, is somehow responsible. 
From what source, then, can the content of this concept be derived? This must be an extramental entity which actually possesses the features of which this content includes representations. That is to say, an actually existing infinitely perfect being. And by secondary qualities, he's talking about, say, the qualitative feeling of something being read as arising from, say, the interaction of different wavelengths of light and our brain. So someone might argue that God is like a secondary quality. and By secondary qualities, like color, yeah, that maybe a lot of philosophers think there's not color actually in the world. Right. It's just something right. that we're reacting maybe to some interaction with the world, but our mind is making that up. There you go. So God right. is not just made up like a secondary quality based on some interaction between mind and world. And it's important to note that the point of this is to prove the existence of God, not the attributes of the idea. There's an idea of God as being infinite, omnipotent, and so on and, and so forth. And there's a step you have to take where you say that necessary existence is contained in that idea. It's like it's, I don't want to use the term property because that's kind of an, an issue, but Necessary existence is a necessary part of the idea of an infinite, omnipotent, omniscient God that Descartes has. The way you're phrasing it, I think, slides over, shows exactly how close, even though this version in Meditation 3 is not technically the ontological argument, it slides very naturally to his version in uh, number 5, which is the updated version of the classic Proof from St. Anselm. But in this version here, in number three, like it doesn't mention specifically that he has to have a necessary existence. It's just that infinity is mm, so that's huge, a good point, somebody right? must have put it there. Yeah, one is making a sort of argument about causes. It's almost like a cross between the cosmological and ontological. You're saying God has to be there as the cause of the concept. Gotcha. Whereas Anselm's argument is more about logical consistency or a sort of analytic derivation from a concept. So the question is kind of, could you have an idea of infinity if there was no such thing? Could you get by just adding numbers together or objects together the idea of infinity or the idea of an absolute omnipotent God? Or would the idea require existence? Right. The idea of infinity must be caused by this actually infinite thing. Whereas one might argue, as Mackey does, that in fact we get this concept of, of infinity. It comes from an idea of a limit or something that's progressively increasing something, let's say, towards a limit. Yeah, well, I think Mackey also touches on the idea that this is quite similar to Plato's theory of forms. Mm. Not to start off by name dropping, but the idea of I've never seen a straight line or a perfect circle in the world. My eyes have never seen it. I've only seen approximations of it. But I have a sense that it's real, so it must exist somewhere. And it's essentially a version of this argument that Descartes is using, that I've got this idea that I've never seen, and my ideas come from somewhere, so it must be real. Whereas the response to that is that this form is a negative or limiting notion of a perfectly straight line that you get at by the idea is that, well, ah, this thing is straighter than another. It's not perfectly straight because it's a real thing in the world. But once you have the idea of something being straighter, you can gradually increase that towards a limit and a limiting notion that which nothing is straighter is your form but it doesn't have to exist because it can just be built up out of your common everyday experience so you don't buy plato's response to that which is how do we even see that one thing is a progression on another thing without having already in mind this limit to compare it to how do we know that this line is straighter than that line if we didn't already have the notion of straight which is really the notion of perfectly straight, which is the notion of an infinite. Yeah, I think that's an argument that Mackey doesn't deal with, right? 
Not that I notice. He just yeah. seems to give the answer that I usually give on the, in these discussions about that, which is, no, I don't actually have a notion of infinity. It's all a negative notion, which is one that Descartes explicitly considers right there. So we're getting to a point, I think this is our first example, where something just seems obvious. Like, it just seems obvious to him. He clearly and distinctly has a positive notion of infinity in his head, and yet others disagree. So <laughs> we're just always going to agree to disagree? Like, what... <laughs> I think the problem is that you can't experience infinity. It's not like you could ever look at a really large pile of coins and say, that's infinity. And uh, I'm not sure how you get outside of Descartes' mind. I don't know how you take that idea out of Descartes' mind and be able to examine it in an objective way. I don't think you can get out of his head. Well, but we all share it. I mean, so Swinburne really thinks infinity is simple. So my references to Swinburne here, the books that Mackey is reacting to are like three different books from 1977 through 81, The Coherence of Theism, The Existence of God, Faith and Reason, mostly those three. The one I have in my hand here is a much shorter version just called Is There a God from 1996. And it is a uh, – he actually talks about Mackey for a second in like the last page saying, look, I know Mackey's already responded to this, but I still think what I'm saying is reasonable. So he doesn't really respond to Mackey. It's just a shortened, easy-to-read version of it that I skimmed through. So he thinks – that infinity is the simplest explanation. Of course, we have a notion of infinity in our heads. It's the very large that is difficult to hold in our heads. <laughs> like, you know, a million billion. I don't have that number in my head. But infinity, it's a completely simple, understandable thing. Of course, we aren't experiencing it in the way we're experiencing a single or two or three things in front of us. I think the objection here as well is that just because you can conceive of something doesn't mean it exists. So you can conceive of say, a unicorn. Its existence is not implied by that conception of the unicorn. And I think that's the objection to this argument, that yes, you can conceive of infinity, you can conceive of perception, you can conceive of omnipotence, but that doesn't lead to existence. Well, I think it sounds like all the gravity is pulling us into a consideration of the ontological argument proper. <laughs> so this particular one in Meditation 3 is just about, is the notion of infinity in our heads so huge it must have been caused by an infinite thing? Not just does it prove that an infinite thing exists, because of course, Descartes thinks there are lots of things in our heads, like unicorns, you were saying, that don't exist in real life. It's just that in that case, the amount of reality, he says, that our formal reality that our minds have, has is completely sufficient to give us the objective reality he considers, in other words, the reality of the idea considered as an object in our heads of the notion of a unicorn. But that doesn't work with infinity in this concept. Mark, that's a good point, is that this version of Descartes' argument does rely on his notion of clarity and distinctness of ideas. Because what he's going to say is the clarity and distinctness of the idea of the unicorn, it's lacking something because there are no unicorns you actually ever perceived. So Descartes' going to say that your idea of a unicorn is never going to be as clear and distinct as your idea of a horse and that there's something essential there. But he thinks that his idea of God is as clear and distinct, so to speak, as his idea of a horse or chair or anything like that, which, as you already mentioned, is debatable. <laughs> you can say that. But when Descartes says, by God, I understand a substance, infinite, independent, all-knowing, all-powerful, and by which I myself and every other thing that exists were created. If you could actually clearly and distinctly conceive of such a thing, then you might very well question how it got into your head, <laughs> which is exactly mm -hmm. what he does. But the first objection is, 
you probably don't have as clear and distinct an idea as you think you do. And then the second objection is to take on the notion of causality, right? Because that's really what it hinges on is it says, okay, if you do have this clear and distinct idea and ideas are always generated from somewhere and you could not have generated that idea yourself from your experience or what have you, then something else must have generated and stuck it in your brain. Yep. And that thing is God. And I think it's that last point, which is Mackie's objection, that ideas don't necessarily have to come from perception, that you can experience it as a negative. You're aware of your own limitations and imperfections, so therefore you can conceive of perfection, even though you would never attain perfection. Yes. What I find interesting here, before we jump to the ontological argument proper, is that both Mackie and Descartes here, they agree that we do have this idea in our head, that is, the idea of an infinite being is coherent. And that's just an initial line that you could object to before any of this gets off the ground. And actually reading the Swinburne, I think it was a little persuasive to me in talking me out of this. So there are two kinds of theologians that one might be in the tradition of Aquinas and Descartes and these guys who really think that the fundamental notions are reasonable and understandable. Now, of course, we don't know what it's like to be an infinite being because we're not. But we can understand that. That's a perfectly simple notion. And then there's this version that's come up in like our Taoism discussion and our, our Schleiermacher discussion that the infinite is so huge that we don't have it in our head. We could never even really conceive of it. There's nothing we can say about God. It's all going to fall into apparent self-contradiction, but it's, it's a pregnant self-contradiction. You know, what is truly important can't be said. It's not something that reason can get a hold of. So I think about those medieval dilemmas like, can God create a rock bigger than he can lift? That uh, you might just say that's like a Zen koan, that you just contemplate the divine and say, ultimately, it's beyond human understanding and we shouldn't be making these rational arguments in the first place. But this is the other tradition. This is natural theology. So Swinburne just says, no. God can't make a rock bigger than he can lift. And that doesn't mean he's not omnipotent, but omnipotent is being able to do everything that there is to do. If something violates the law of logic, it is not a valid option for anyone to do, no matter how powerful they are. So uh, Swinburne himself, I don't want to go into the details on this, but he has to make some tough decisions, I think, and depart from maybe what your average theist would believe, even though he's a Catholic and trying to sort of represent the Thomas Aquinas traditional position, like he thinks that the notion of God outside of time doesn't make any sense to him. If God's an object, God exists in time. Well, God's a special kind of object that exists at all places and was present from all times, but he doesn't exist outside of the stream of time. And so in the same way that you can't do everything, like to violate the laws of logic, God can't know, for instance, the future actions of free people because he gave us freedom. We exist in time. He exists in time, even though all of the time. He's not above time looking upon our future. So that's another sort of traditional paradox. How can we be free yet God knows what we're going to do? Well, according to Swinburne, who's trying his best to make this all rational, God doesn't know what we're going to do. I think that that's why Mackey doesn't consider this objection at all. There should be a whole chapter on it as far as I'm concerned, that the notion of God is just internally incoherent. But he's starting with Swinburne's notion, I think, which I, is something like, I don't know, maybe Descartes or uh, Aquinas hadn't thought it out completely, but they're definitely pushing on the same purely rationalist, understandable notion of God. Can I make a reference to an earlier episode? I've done it five times already. <laughs> so when we were did the philosophy of mind episode, we read Nagel's article, What is it like to be a bat? Yeah. Yep. And the conclusion is we don't know what it's like to be a bat, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I find interesting is this bit about, well, I have this clear and distinct idea of God. And this clear and distinct idea of God is not just the infinite, right? It's omnipotent 
omniscient, infinite, perfectly good, you know, self-generating, self-generating, all these things. If I can't even have a concept, and maybe I'm making an error here, but if I don't even know what it's like to be a bat, how could I possibly have any idea of what it's like to be God? And therefore, how could my idea of God be anything more than the kind of idea I have of a bat? It's furry, it falls in this phylum, et cetera, et cetera. In which case, it's not a very rich idea. Well, you're not asking what it's like to be God, though. You are just asking about the God equivalents of furry and all that. Yeah, I'm just thinking that the content of that idea is not robust enough to warrant needing a source outside of myself. Yeah, well, I think the clear and distinct thing really gets us into the ontological arguments because the work it's doing there for Descartes is that it's sort of conceptual or analytic, right? In the same way that the idea of a mountain can't be separated from that of a valley, you can't separate the idea of God from that of God's existence. So the clearness and distinctness there is meant to get you towards this comparison of, say, idea of God with mathematical ideas where it's very, very clear that one thing follows analytically or definitionally from another. And so the idea here is that it should be very clear that God's existence follows almost definitionally from his concepts. I mean, I agree with you that is it really a clear and distinct idea? Not in any robust sense, right? I just think if you say, oh, well, God is all-knowing, that's almost almost meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. I would hardly call it clear and distinct Yeah, to the extent you would need to have somebody implanted in your brain. Right. So somebody want to give a version, maybe Descartes' version of the Meditation 5 ontological argument proper with perfections? I might have done that earlier, but here's this. I have an idea of a supremely perfect being, i.e. a being having all perfections. Necessary existence is a perfection. Therefore, a supremely perfect being exists. How's that? Yep. Yeah. Short and sweet. Thank you, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. (laughs) So we'd responded to this on some episodes before with like Kant's version with, oh, you can't say that uh, existence is one of the perfections because even if a perfection means every attribute that is perfect, something has every good attribute, but existing is not an attribute at all. It's not a property. It's something that it does. That seems to be the way Kant put it. And so that got codified in formal logic with the quantifiers and in our... Frege episode, Frege or and or our Russell episodes, we talked about how you just don't even give it the same symbology. So if you say X is green, you might say GX, where G is is green, but you can't make existence a predicate like that. You have to use a quantifier and say there is such an X, such that X has this property, and there is such a is just a completely different thing logically than these other things. Yeah, and Mackie will sidestep that and make us agnostics on whether existence can be a property because he thinks that there's a more fundamental objection. And I like that. Mackie will open up the possibility of saying there exists an X such that X is G and X exists. But then you have to think about the relationship between your two different uses there of X exists, where you're using exists as a predicate, and then this quantify, this existential quantifier, there exists an X such that. I think we should use the example of the re-martian here that Mackie uses. What page is that on? So page 41 at the top. Mackie uses the example of saying that a Martian exists is different from saying something like a re-martian exists where re-martian is defined as a Martian who exists. So existence is contained in the definition. Then from that, you say it's illogical to say a re-martian does not exist. It's self-contradictory. And this is the kind of argument that Descartes is making. He's begged the question by saying, 
God exists. And so therefore he proves a logical contradiction to say God does yeah. not exist. And th- this is Kant's argument against which Mackey is going to say, we don't need to accept this. So for Kant, Kant is just going to come out with existence can't be a predicate. Yeah, you can't have remartian. You can't have a remartian. And that's a kind of vague and unsupported. That's a question that's complex enough that Mackey doesn't want to get into it. He wants to leave that open, the idea of whether existence can be a predicate. So by the time Mackey's done with this, you can have a concept of remartian, but you can coherently say it is not the case that there exists an X such that X is a remartian, which breaks down to, you can say it is not the case that there exists an X such that X is a Martian and X exists. In other words, you can treat existence as a predicate and then deny that something exists with that predicate. Right. Deny that it is instantiated. Exactly. Thanks for listening to this Partially Examined Life episode preview. If you're enjoying it so far, you can purchase the full episode in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps.